Welcome to Policy Works, a podcast brought to you by the Reimagining the Economy Project at the Harvard Kennedy School. My name is Rohan Sandhu, and I co-lead the project with faculty directors Gordon Hansen and Danny Roderick. Through these conversations, we are trying to understand the practice of economic development, local experimentation, coordination challenges, and institutional arrangements. On this episode, we try and unpack the politics of economic reform, issues around state capacity, and empowering local communities to be a part of decision-making with our guest, Lisa Nandi. Lisa, from the Labour Party in the United Kingdom, has been a member of Parliament for Wigan since 2010. She currently serves as the Shadow Secretary of State for Leveling Up, Housing, Communities and Local Government. In the past, she has also served as Shadow Foreign Secretary, Shadow Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change, and Shadow Minister for Education. Lisa has a new book out titled All In, How We Build a Country That Works, where she unpacks the range of socioeconomic challenges that the UK faces, including the winners and losers from globalization, regional inequalities and underinvestment, and outlines a vision for inclusive development. I chat with Lisa about the UK's productivity challenges, the politics of economic reform, including why liberals all over the world were unable or slow to understand the level of economic discontentment, and how she looks back at the economic legacies of Prime Ministers Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. We then turn our attention to regional inequalities, the leveling up agenda, and the need to devolve power and build state capacity. Lisa Nandi, thank you for joining us on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Well, Lisa, I've had a chance to read your great new book. And before we dive into the content of the book, you've played a variety of roles you know, in the opposition in UK politics in the past decade. What is it that made you want to write this book and what are you hoping it accomplishes? I mean, I guess I, I've had 13 years as the MP for a town, Wigan, in the northwest of England, which is a former mining town. Some of your listeners might be familiar with it through the road to Wigan Pier, which was a very famous George Orwell book. And over that time, Wigan, like many former coalfield communities, has been at the centre of the big waves of political upheaval that we've seen in Britain and that, that I think have been experienced in the United States and across the world. We had a huge rise in support for populism. We saw falling voter turnout for a long time. We thought people were, but actually they were just angry. We've seen a rise in nationalism and, of course, a huge vote to leave the European Union, which was concentrated in towns like mine. And for all of that time, political commentators, politicians, journalists have largely, not exclusively, but largely taken all the wrong cues from what the electorate has been trying to tell us. And I wanted to write this book because the 13 years that I've spent as Wigan's representative has changed me, it's changed my politics, and it's given me a far better understanding, not just of the challenges that countries like Britain and many liberal democracies face, but also about how much better things could be if we understood and respected the contribution that people in places like Wigan have to make. Well, there are many of those issues that I want to follow up on. But before I do that, you know, your book talks about your mother being one of the first women to be a producer on TV and running a newsroom and your father being an immigrant. 
How have these things shaped your approach to your role and to your understanding of the UK's challenges? I love that you started with my mum because usually the conversation centres around my dad, my granddad, every man I've ever met in politics. And I've had to remind so many commentators that I didn't have <laughs> a mother as well, who actually has been the most profound influence on my life. You know, this was a generation of women who broke lots of glass ceilings, but they didn't just get to do it all, uh, have it all, is to do it all. They were still doing the bulk of the childcare and the, you know, the, the family pressures, the cleaning, the cooking, as well as trying to be, in my mum's case, the chief breadwinner in the house and also to really go out and set the agenda and to, to go where women hadn't gone before. And, I, you know, I learned from her and from a lot of women in her generation that, that possible, change is possible. Uh, and that you should never limit your ambitions, but it, that it's hard and you've got to be realistic about that. And I think from my dad, particularly with him being an immigrant to this country and an academic, which has been quite an important influence on me, I think I've learned a few things. I've learned to treat your opponents not as enemies, but as opponents with people from whom you have something to learn as well as something to teach that you defeat their argument at its strongest point, not its weakest point, and you engage and grapple with the perspective that they have. And I think particularly as an immigrant, I think a lot of immigrants will say this, that my dad sees the slight tangent to the world. He has a slightly different perspective than most of the people that I know. And that has been enormously helpful for me because British politics can be incredibly insular and your world can shrink so much. And actually, when you lift your eyes up to the horizon, which very few politicians get the chance to do you start to see that ch real change is possible and I think him being an immigrant to this country from India that has been one of the things that the gifts that that has given me I want to dive into so many of those topics you know the the, the politics the economics uh, the localism that you talk about in your book uh, so let's get started you know at a higher level you know you talking about the socio and economic challenges that the UK faces one of the things I was most intrigued by was that you use language typically used in developing countries while describing some of the challenges that the UK faces. For instance, when you talk about the UK's productivity problems, but then you draw more direct comparison to something you witnessed during your trip to Tunisia as you know, foreign, uh, the shadow foreign secretary. Um, you write, and I quote, just like the young people in Tunisia we met earlier, they are the casualties of a system that creates winners and losers, the few who hold power and will not relinquish it easily, and the many, many people who are denied a say over the things that matter in their lives, community, and country. Now, you've written a whole book in this, but help us unpack this briefly. How do you relate all of this to the political changes in the UK over the past decade, but also in the past couple of months? Well, I think many of your listeners, particularly in the United States, will be familiar with the idea that far too few people have control over their own lives, their families, their communities and the future of their country. I think that was something that 10 years ago when I started out as Wiggins MP was not well understood at all. But through the big waves of political change, whether it was the election of Donald Trump in the United States, people didn't see coming, or the, uh, the, the vote to leave the European Union in the UK, I think more people now do understand that there's a real problem when a small group of people hold a very tight grip. It's not just that that is... Uh, you know, writes off 
it writes off the contribution that other people have to make. It's felt as profoundly disrespectful, almost a sort of casual kind of violence to the people that are being afflicted by it, having things done to them that while they watch the things that matter most to them falling apart. But it's also that it's such a tragedy for a country like Britain, where in every community of our country, you've got people who are in it for the long haul, who have a stake in the outcome and skin in the game, and they're working harder, they're trying longer, they're being more creative in order to solve problems and build things that last for the future. But so often the system is stacked against them when they try to do that. And the, the purpose of writing the book was to argue that if we if we flipped that system, if they felt the whole system pulling in behind them rather than banging up against them when they create, tried to create change, we could build a country that works again. So you just talked about the Brexit vote and Donald Trump's election in the US. And the general, you know, you write a lot about the general political polarization across the world. Why do you think conservatives have been able to tap into the sentiment on the ground uh, better than liberals? And what has prevented liberals all over the world, pretty much, from being able to see and understand this economic discontent? Um, I think in Britain, certainly it's two things. And I felt this a little bit in the United States when I came over just after the Brexit vote and met with Hillary Clinton's campaign team, who were phenomenally interesting people running campaigns that were miles ahead of the sort of campaigning techniques that we have here in the UK and I learned a lot from them but there was a really striking moment where I said to them we've got this huge problem in Britain on the left because our traditional voter coalition the older working class people that I represent in Tangan and the younger more university educated socially liberal voters that are largely now concentrated in our major cities there's a huge disconnect here and there are very different experiences of globalization very different social attitudes and and we've lost the ability to speak for both what what do you do to deal with those challenges and the answer was well those older working class more rural voters really have nowhere else to go so you know we pursue our agenda and they have to come on board and of it, that was the moment, I think, where I started to think, my goodness me, Donald Trump is going to be president of the United States because it was such a similar phenomenon to the one that we've been dealing with here in Britain. And I think that's partly a consequence of, um, you know, whether you call them liberals in the United States, we call them socialists here in Britain. It's went out of fashion for a while, but it's back. But, you know, the sort of progressives in in global politics. I think that's partly a consequence of shrunk into a very narrow group of people who are drawn from a very narrow socio-economic background. In Britain, most most leading actors in the Labour Party tend to live in London uh, and have lived in London for most of their lives. And I think there has been a sense in which we've lost the ability to understand the country that we want to lead. But I think it goes further than that in some parts of the left as well. A profound lack of respect or understanding for people, their way of life, their their views, their priorities. I think we're starting to repair that here in Britain, but it, that's been a, a major factor. And then I think the second, the second issue really for us here in the UK, which might be a particular UK issue, is that England in particular, not, not Scotland and Wales, but England is a very small c conservative country instinctively and to vote Labour which people have only done three times in our hundred year history it's a bit of a leap for most people it's a leap of faith they'll do it 
if they really believe that we have a compelling story to tell about the country, but it's not the default and it's not the status quo. We don't win by default. And so, you know, the bar is always higher and that, that's not me complaining about that. That's just a recognition that it's always going to be higher for us. And simultaneously, we have to do two things. We have to convince people that they can trust us, that we're, they're safe with us, people, working class people who have far more to lose. If we get things wrong on the economy, they lose their homes, they lose their jobs. If we get things wrong on foreign policy, their children go off to war, they lose their lives. You know, this is they are far more at the sharp end of these decisions. So we have to show that we can be trusted. But we also have to show that real change is possible. And that really between now and the next general election here in Britain is our task. We've got to make hope convincing for people at a time when it feels anything but. You know, my general sense, as is the sense of many commentators, is that the left, liberals, progressives, you know, you know that entire category of policymakers generally have a problem with creating a narrative around their causes. You know, it's you know famously stated that Republicans or the right in general makes their policies in headlines, whereas the left makes its policies in white papers. Uh, given this, what what is how do you see your work cut out for you over the next three years? Um, I think we like to complicate things on the left. And uh, I think that is partly a consequence. Certainly in Britain, we've always been a, a coalition of working class people, particularly through the trade union movement, who came together to build the, form the Labour Party and to have a political wing of the trade union movement and a group of intellectuals who middle class intellectuals of which, you know, my, my family are very much in that camp. My dad's a, an Indian academic. My mum comes from, she was university educated as well. But the, I think that is partly a tendency of this intellectual strain within the, the left that we tend to overcomplicate things in a way that, you know, many of the right wing populists particularly are much better at simplifying things. But I don't think that's inevitable. You know, when I go around the country and I, I listen to people talking about their priorities, you know, the, with the government recently here published a, a huge prospectus for what they call levelling up, you know, dealing with places that have been left behind and left out of the gains of globalisation. And they had these 13 missions, which were incredibly complicated. But actually, most people that I met said the problem we've got here is that young people have to get out to get on. That's a very northern England phrase, but it basically means that, you know, if your kids want to do well, they've got to move away for work, home, you know, for works, for study, for better wages, because there isn't enough for them back home and they can't stay and contribute. And I, I think we could we could learn a lot, actually, from the people that we're trying to represent because they don't overcomplicate it. It's fairly straightforward. And we, you're right, we've got to get better at doing that. So I'm going to put a pin on levelling up and the you know, topic around regional inequalities for just a moment. In his recent book, The Middle Out, Michael Tomaski lays blame on Republicans and conservatives in politics and academia but he also holds Presidents Clinton and Obama accountable for not changing the rules of the game nearly enough and perhaps for being more incremental in their approaches. Based on where you sit today as one of the architects of the Labour Party's economic agenda, how do you evaluate Tony Blair and Gordon Brown's legacies? And how does the party's economic thinking today differ from that of the past? Um, I mean, I think this is a, something that I've grappled with quite a lot. I read the uh, Tanahasi Coates book, We Were Eight Years in Power, and I thought it was fascinating, both in terms of identifying where the groundwork wasn't, you know, that the, the, the led to Trump 
you know, it wasn't challenged sufficiently. But also perhaps I think it made me reflect on how it's much easier in hindsight to see the problems. And certainly that's true of people like me who've been somewhat critical of the new Labour legacy here in the UK, very, very positive about many of the things that we changed, particularly the transformational change, things like the minimum wage and our equalities legislation that was a game changer for young people from LGBTQ plus backgrounds and has become very much part of the established norms here in the UK. But there were there was a there was a problem and it was that essentially we left the economic model unchanged, that we thought that you could power a major economy in a modern country using only a handful of people in a handful of sectors in a few small parts of the country. And the offer for most other parts of Britain was either public sector investment, which went completely when the Conservatives came to power, or it was redistribution. And as Keir Starmer said in a speech that we worked on a couple of weeks ago, for far too much of the country, there's been only a one word plan for the last four decades, redistribution, but people have a contribution to make. And by writing off that contribution, we haven't just written them off and the places that they call home. We've written them out of the national story as well. And that just won't stick anymore. It won't fly. For, for two reasons. One, because people have said so. And in the end, in a democracy, people always win. But also because it's just fundamentally not working for our economy. It doesn't produce enough to help sustain decent high streets and thriving communities and good public services, particularly our National Health Service, which was once a crown jewel in Britain and has been systematically run down for the last decade. And if we want to rebuild all of those things, we've got to start spreading power and opportunity and prosperity far more widely across the country. I do want to, you know, dive into that much more now. You know, while talking about the UK's economic challenges, you summarize these very well in your book, in your discussion on winners and losers. But you also point to the intersection of these winners and losers with place and regional inequalities. Now, as you also just said, we haven't just written off the contribution of most people, we've written off the contribution of most places too. Help us understand this intersection better and what is the nature of regional inequalities across the country? I mean, we've for in Britain for a hundred years we've been trying to deal with the fact that we're regionally one of the most unequal countries in the world. Shavar uh, activity is concentrated in a handful of sectors, particularly the financial sector and particularly in the city of London. But over the last few decades, we've pursued a model of investing in cities in order to try to reboot regions and hoping that the benefits would trickle out to other places. And just as trickle-down economics, the idea that you can unleash the, what the Conservatives here call the wealth creators at the top to make super massive amounts of money that you then put, you know, tax and push down to, to others, just as that is now a thoroughly discredited model, so is the idea that by investing in some places, the benefits are felt far more widely. Largely speaking, not exclusively, but largely speaking, it just hasn't been the case. And it's becoming a real problem for Britain because in those coastal and industrial towns that within living memory powered the world, not only are people thoroughly disillusioned, but these are the places that offer us the most potential as we go through the energy revolution and deal with the climate crisis. These are the places that we ought to be investing 
and ought to be recognising and respecting the assets that exist there and the contribution that people have to make. But for far too long, we haven't done that. And that that's partly a consequence of being place blind in the way that we do policy. We've seen groups of people, whether it's older people struggling to heat their homes, you, you know, younger people, children growing up in poverty. We've seen groups of people, but what we haven't seen is places. And now that's starting to change, not just in Britain. I think that's starting to change all over the world. And there are some countries that are much further ahead on this. I mean, Germany is a, a really good example of where they've been much, much better at seeing places and they give much more equality and equal weight to different parts of Germany, in co part a consequence of their, their history and their very difficult legacy post-war and not wanting to see power concentrated in one place. But I think there is a lot that we can learn from countries like Germany about how to spread that opportunity far more widely. Say more about the potential you see in some of these left behind regions in terms of the climate transition? Well, we, you know, we, Britain is in a high and we're a pretty windy place. As th those listeners who know Britain well will know. We have, um, in some parts of Britain, we have a really thriving wind industry off the northeast winds. For example, in uh, in Grimsby, in, in Yorkshire and the Humber, there was a there was a decision 20 years ago to invest in wind energy and as a consequence young people from Grimsby are powering the world from the Grimsby docks. This is a, a place that had become very deprived because of the loss of much of the fishing industry but has found a new industry and is really at the forefront of developing new technology. And in many of the former mining towns, we've still got this huge legacy of expertise from those days in the mines and the mills. We have engineering expertise. We teach young people from all over the world to study engineering. But then we don't create the jobs here in the UK in order for them to have those opportunities closer to home. And if we got on the front foot, if we were able to see the potential in those places and to start investing and backing our people, if we had a government that matched the ambition that is found in all of those places amongst all people, despite 40 years of relative economic decline, we could really start to turn around Britain's current national malaise and start to do things better. But it's my view and it's what one of the central arguments of the book, that in order to do that, you've got to move decision making and resources out of the capital and into those communities where people don't just see the problems that are posed, but they see the potential that exists there. Mm -hmm. In this context, how do you see the role of the leveling up agenda? And to build on you know, some of our previous questions, why was it that this agenda was one that the Tories were able to identify and you know, not the Labour Party in its previous forms? I mean, you know, I think that's partly a consequence of what we were talking about earlier about the the shrinking of the progressive left into, you know, people who come from a particular background and live in particular parts of the country. And I think that there has grown up a real cultural disconnect. There's a, a man called Michael Young, who you might be familiar with, who was a major figure in the Labour movement here in Britain, who wrote a book about the meritocracy. And it was an allegory, it was a warning about what would happen if we were to move from a very aristocratic country, which he profoundly rejected, you know, this idea that you can be born into privilege and, and hold on to privilege and pass it down through the generations. But to move from that to a meritocracy, he, he was warning 50 years ago that this would be a big problem because the winners would continue to win. They would change the logic of the system in order to, to support themselves and to ensure they continue to do well. 
But now the losers from that settlement would own their own sense of failure. And that is exactly what has happened. So if you don't succeed in modern Britain, it's largely your fault. And people have almost internalised that sense of, of failure. You could hear it running right through the language of the David Cameron era about the wealth creators. And we had to back the wealth creators. These were the super rich, the winners from globalisation. And, you know, my view is that they're not the wealth creators, actually. The people who create the wealth are the ordinary men and women who power our factories and heat our homes and deliver our mail and teach our children. And those are the people that you've got to back if you want the country to do well. But to do that, it requires a complete shift in mindset. And, you know, yesterday I was at the Royal Society of Arts, one of our great institutions. I was talking to Andy Haldane, who is a former chief economist at the Bank of England, who's been working with the Conservative government to write their levelling up agenda. And he was saying, you know, everybody in this room is essentially here because the education system that we have worked for people like us. This very academic education system and exam based it works for people like us, those people whom it doesn't work for are largely not in this room. And we shouldn't kid ourselves that we're here on merit. We're here because the system has been designed to help people like us. Well, what if we changed that? What if we started thinking much more creatively about how to equip young people with both vocational and academic skills for the modern world? And suddenly all that potential becomes possible again. And so, you know, I think this it's a huge agenda, really, levelling up what it spoke to and what it tapped into it's collapsed under the conservatives into a bit of an election slogan but really what lies behind it that sentiment that people understood when they heard it is incredibly important it's about national renewal after 40 years of malaise and it's about the future of britain and frankly whether we have one or not so as shadow leveling up secretary what would a labor leveling up agenda look like and how would it differ from the current conception of it well, I think the key for us is getting good jobs back into communities and equipping our young people in those places with choices and chances so that if they want to move away to work, to study, you know, whether that's across the European Union or across the globe, that they should have the opportunity to do that. But if they want to stay and contribute, we should not be imposing a choice on those kids of having to choose between the future, work and opportunity, love, family and community. They were our choices, not theirs, and that should never have been the situation that we were in. And I think that's because, for two reasons. One is because, as socialists, we want people to live larger, richer, more dignified lives. And the reality in Britain and in much of the much of the Western world at the moment is that people simply don't, and that has got worse during my lifetime. But also because, um, you know, for a hundred years we've had these attempts to sort of reduce regional inequalities. But they've always been seen as something nice to have, something that would be good for the region, something that would be good for local communities. But actually, there's a difference now because we certainly on the left in Britain see this as at the centre of Britain's national crisis, that you cannot power a modern economy if you write off the contribution of most people and most places. And you can't have a cohesive society if you write people out of your national story, everyone has a stake in the future of this country and they have to believe that again. We've found multiple ways over the last decade in Britain to divide ourselves from each other. We've had a rise in support for nationalism in Scotland and in England and in Wales. We've had the Leave Remain debate dominating through Brexit. 
we found all these ways to create divisions, but actually the, the national mood, the national sentiment is that people want to leave that behind because a house that's divided can't stand. And particularly given the global challenges that we currently face, we've got to find ways to come together and, and work through the future. And I think levelling up gives us the opportunity to do that because at its heart, it's about a basic respect for different people in different parts of Britain and to understand that by the strength of our common endeavour, we achieve more than we achieve alone. That's a line, by the way, that's on the back of the Labour Party pledge card. It's always been our motto in the Labour Party and our mantra, but I think we forgot it in recent years and we need to remember it again if we've got a shot at healing what has been a very fractured and divided country. So I have several follow-up questions, but let me start with this one. Leveling up often centers and conversations around manufacturing, but in the UK, the services sector is even more dominant than it is in the US. We all know that manufacturing of the future will be more and more specialized. And while productive, it won't generate the same jobs boom as it did in the past. What can regional economic policy do then to improve low-wage service sectors, like the care economy, for example, which you, again, do talk about in your book to some extent? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is really, I think this is where the, the thinking is perhaps least developed, but most interesting. In Britain, we call it the everyday economy. This idea that you have in every part of the country, you have this foundational economy without which nothing can work. It's the care workers, the hairdressers, it's the, uh, you know, it's the it's the people who are going out and holding things together in communities and providing food, food production workers, providing very basic services that are absolutely fundamental to whether the country can work or not. And over the last few decades, the value of that work, the respect for it and the reward for it has been really devastated. It's been run down to the point where now in Britain we have a, a crisis in not just in social care and, and the ability to look after our ageing population, but we've also got a crisis in the National Health Service because just this morning I was in my local accident and emergency department. They had 138 beds being taken up by people who were medically fit to leave but had nowhere to go because we can't recruit social workers into the profession because they've they're worked so hard and they're paid so little that they would be better off working in a local supermarket with decent work-life balance and far better wages. And if you want to really start to repair the country, you've got to focus on that everyday economy and start to think quite creatively about what you do about that. Now, pay rises is obviously a, 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 a huge issue. I mean, in Britain, we've got a wave of strikes in almost every public service now across the board because people are going out to care for our families but they're not paid enough to look after their own but it, it, raising wages in and of itself is expensive and has to be paid for particularly in the public sector so the question is what do you do and there's a, a really fascinating economist a British economist called Diane Coyle who has done quite a lot of work looking at how you might skill up people who work in what are commonly labelled in quite a sort of demeaning way, low-skilled work when it's vital, but skill though, upskill those professions to be able to take on and do far more 
in order that the wages will also rise as well. That does two things. One is it, it protects the foundational economy. It means that you've got a base so that things can work. But it also has a particular impact on parts of the country where we've seen good jobs leaving for the last 40 years and where the population has aged outside of our major cities and where you've got a real crisis in things like social care, but you've also got a lot of people working in it. And those wages have tended to be very low, which is what undermines the whole basis of the local economy because if people don't have money in their pockets they can't go out and spend it and then everything starts to fall apart so this is a really interesting area of work it's one that Rachel Reeves our shadow chancellor here in the UK wrote wrote about almost a decade ago and is really interested in and it's something that we're we're talking to people all over the world about trying to develop as the thinking emerges around it. Since you mentioned Rachel Reeves, this is a good segue to my next question. And you probably know what's, you know, you probably know what the question is given, you know, the conversation this week. Uh, now for leveling up to work, we need to be thinking about both greater devolution of authority, but also improved administrative capacity in areas that have hitherto been left behind. This week, there's been some debate around the topic uh, with the shadow chancellor, Rachel Reeves, saying there would not be, you know, new tax powers for councils. Something that's sort of seen at odds with what a lot of lo local leaders think is, you know, the the the, the reform that's needed, uh, without making it just about this, you know, this particular debate or this particular incident. How can more power be devolved to the local level, but while also being cognizant of unequal state capacities across regions? Yes. Yeah, so this is the holy grail. How do you get to a place where instead of local leaders in every part of the country having to go cap in hands to junior ministers in Whitehall and Westminster to beg for small grants and small powers and small permissions to do something as absurd as putting a park bench in Stockport and Greater Manchester or develop allotments in Birmingham. And I kid you not, these are real examples of where people have had to go and ask for permission and funding to do things that should be there's a right to do in their own communities. How do you get from that position to a position where places are far more financially autonomous, where they can raise their own money and decide how to spend that money and where local leaders, our elected mayors, our council leaders aren't just accountable to Westminster, they're accountable downwards to the people that they serve. And at the moment, the system isn't working for anybody because it's frustrating for local leaders it's frustrating for national government because every time they hand out a grant, they come back for more. And it's frustrating for people because they're completely cut out of the conversation. And this week, Rachel was talking about not wanting to just increase the tax burden on people at a time when they're really struggling. But there are examples of where already lots of mayors and local authorities, councils here in Britain are starting to raise taxes. They're doing it on a voluntary basis because they don't have permission to do it from government, but they're doing it in Birmingham, in Manchester, in Liverpool, for example, um, a tourist levy, what's com commonly known as a hotel bedroom tax. And they're asking people on a voluntary basis who are visitors to the city to add a couple of pounds to their bill so that that money can then be reinvested in the local community and far more widely outside of the cities in places that need, badly need investment. And it, it seems to us that there's a the big problem is not whether you get to a place where 
places are financially viable. The question is how you get there and how you get there without local economies where there isn't a great big tax base to be tapped into, where people don't have a lot of money. How do you how do you make sure that in the on the journey towards financial independence, that those places have some proper form of redistribution from the centre so that they don't pull further and further behind. And one idea that we've been looking at, for example, from national government is a is a guarantee of a minimum level of infrastructure in every part of the country. So there's been a huge live and very quite angry debate at times on the progressive left about a minimum income guarantee. And it arouses very strong feelings in people, in fact, including myself. But we've not really thought in terms of place again and a minimum infrastructure would ensure that those places can't fall economically as far behind as they've been allowed to over the last four decades you know whether it's trade whether it's policing so that town centres don't become no-go areas whether it's investment in skills if every place was guaranteed a minimum that would be a game changer for Britain it's not something that we've done before but it's something that we're seriously exploring that we might do in the future. Now, the flip side for all of this, of course, is the capacity of the state to deliver. You you talked earlier about a reduction in public investment in, you know, in capabilities. There's also been, you know, you know, a very strong conversation around the capacity of the NHS being outsourced. Now, when we talk about regions being responsible for their own development, there are a variety of coordination failures and, you know, that are likely to come up with a weak state being in power or with weak state capabilities. In your book, what what needs to be the state capacity agenda moving forward, both centrally, in, you know, starting from London, but then also in a more decentralized manner at, at the regional level? I mean, the great learning for me over the last couple of decades, before I came into Parliament, I was working with homeless teenagers on the streets of London um, and then came into Parliament and have, have you know, dealt with lots of challenges over the last 13 years. The great learning for me has been, as somebody who's fundamentally very statist by instinct, is that governments don't change things, people do. And what they need is an active empowering government that walks alongside them and supports them with investment and help and energy and ambition in order to help them deliver on their priorities. I learned that first and foremost from those homeless kids that I used to work with. They knew what was going wrong in their lives. They knew better than anyone else how to fix it. But what they needed at that time of crisis was people to step in and say we can help with the very basic fundamentals that you need to get from where you are now to where you want to be. And almost every time we took that approach, it worked. Now, I think running a country is no different, actually, that if you walk into any community in our country, you will find people who know what has gone wrong, what needs to be fixed and what potential exists there and how much more they could do with the right support. But what's tended to happen is that instead of taking that approach, successive governments have come in and said, we're going to fix your problems for you. This is particular problem on the left, I think, this paternalism, this idea that we're coming in to save you um, because you can't save yourselves. And it's disrespectful to people and it's completely wrong and it writes off the biggest potential that we have in our country, which is this very quiet patriotism that is in, at work in all of our communities where people come together to try and build better. Um, so it's my view that the state has to fundamentally change. It should stop trying to micromanage millions of decisions that are none of its business. And it should start thinking about doing its actual job 
my view is that national governments matter. I don't subscribe to this idea that, you know, nations are broken or that national government is bad and local government is good. I think that's a, a cheap device designed to divert attention from the fact that those pr proponents of it don't know how to mend the system. But, you know, if you look at some of the big challenges we've got in Britain, frequent flooding events that are putting homes and businesses underwater across large swathes of the country. We've got a growing problem with fraud from international gangs that are targeting our elderly population. They're losing their homes and their life savings. We've got this huge problem with football clubs being taken over by big money interests and used not only to you know, play things for the super rich, but also to subvert democracy in some cases for, you know, dodgy actors trying to get a foothold in British democracy and trying to exert greater influence over what happens here. All of these things are things that only national governments working with other like-minded national governments can tackle. And yet for far too long, we've had the very people who are meant to be doing that, reaching global agreement on things like a global minimum corporation tax. Instead of doing that, they've been trying to decide whether we get a park bench in Greater Manchester. It's an absolute nonsense. And I think we've got to fundamentally reassess the role of the state in order that we can build a country that works. Mm -hmm. So, you know, your book started a very inspiring example on Wigan about community participation to save a local football club. You know, a British colleague recently commented that football clubs are the churches of modern England. Uh, but what are, what are other such examples of community participation that you've seen across the country? And what are the implications of what you witnessed in Wigan, for example, on economic planning and administration? How can we How can we use that as an inspiration for how decisions get made more generally about governance? I met this amazing group of women a few a few years ago up in Sunderland in the northeast of England. The northeast was the economic powerhouse of Britain. I'll probably get in tr trouble for saying that because I'm from the northwest, but you know it's it's an incredible region and it's you know through work in the mine, the coal mines and through the shipping industry. It really was at the centre of the world and at the centre of British industry for a, a long time and still is in many respects, but, you know, has has struggled with those same sort of global trends as a national response as, as many other of the, the world. And I was up there, very proud community. Uh, talking to a group of women who a few years ago had watched their high street falling apart, they'd watched historic buildings falling out of use, and they'd watched landlords, private landlords, coming in and buying up large swathes of the housing stock and then claiming money from government to house people who were considered to be very vulnerable and had additional needs, alcohol problems, mental health problems, fleeing domestic violence. And so they could get quite a lot of money from the government in order to house those people, but without providing any real support or help and an appalling quality of housing as well. And the whole community was feeling the impact of this suddenly a very stable community had become very transient. There were lots of antisocial behaviour problems. The town centre didn't feel like a safe place to go, boarded up buildings, and they were absolutely determined to do something about it. They got a very small grant from the last Labour government. They were the last group to get one before we lost power in 2010. And with it, they bought up a few houses in the town centre and did them up. And they rented them out to local people. They used the proceeds to then buy some more and to keep investing. They've brought the historic library in the centre of the village back into use. 
They've started to invest in the skills of the young people there and in wider support for the community, employment and retraining. And they provide housing and employment advice as well. They are the most incredible group of women who, with a tiny, tiny bit of help, from the national state have completely transformed again the community that they live in and given people the sort of choices and chances that they would never have had before. They they could do that because they had a government that spotted the potential and wanted to back them. People haven't had that for far too long. Instead, what they tend to find is that the system is rigged against them. So take that example of the private landlords. They, nobody checks what they're providing to those vulnerable tenants. They just The government just hands over massive amounts of public money to those people who are running down our housing stock and treating their tenants appallingly and ruining communities. That's an example of the system working for the wrong people and against the right people. And it could be changed. It could be changed on day one of a different government if we had the political will to do it. And this group of women, they call themselves Back on the Map, which I love as a name because it's a recognition of how much they contributed and how much they still have to contribute in Hendon in Sunderland. If you're ever in Hendon, up in the northeast of England, go and see them. They are the most incredible group of people. But there are people like that in every part of the country. That's the point. And, you know, I've met them in the United States. I've met them in Austria. I've met them in Germany. I've met them in France. I've met people in every country who are doing this. But so often, as that we've experienced in Britain, the system rubs up against them rather than pulling in behind them and helping them to achieve what we know we could achieve with the right backing. From a policy perspective, then, how do you leverage this really these really inspiring examples or you know this the existence of you know the, this as a resource to plan and to decentralize uh governance better well i think two things first is that you've got to put assets in it's not just enough to give them powers we've had a real movement to try and do that in fairness to the Cap david cameron government there was a a push to try to get more powers into communities uh, during that time. And so, for example, when Wigan Athletic, my football club, was taken over and then put into administration, we had the right to buy that football club. The tr trouble was we didn't have £16 million down the back of a sofa. And so the right was useless because what use are rights without the means to realise them? So we're doing at the moment thinking about how you get assets and particularly revenue raisers back into community hands. So not just the right to buy your football club, but the, the money to do it. We're looking at whether we could hand over housing, stock, land and other assets, live music venues to communities to be able to run and to generate the revenue to reinvest in the things that matter to them. But I think the second part of that is that that is necessary in order to to support good, strong communities. It's by nowhere near sufficient to rebuild our country. Actually, this isn't a local agenda. This is a national agenda. And what you've really got to do is you've got to move the tools of economic decision making out of Westminster and Whitehall to regions and subregions of the UK so that they can drive not one national growth strategy, but lots and lots of local and regional growth strategies in every part of Britain based on the assets that they have. 
The state will fund some of that. Of course, it has to and it must. But really, the, the, the game changer is when you get private investment being leveraged in to those communities. And every time I talk to private investors, they tell us we want to invest in other parts of the country outside of our major cities because we can see the potential. But without the state backing and the state support, you know, the lack of basic infrastructure like roads and rail and investment in skills, it becomes nigh on impossible. Now, we could unblock that with some political will, but it will take some political will. I feel quite optimistic about it, though, because... I think there is a sense here in Britain that everything is broken now. And wherever you go, even amongst people who've been relatively well protected from the impact of the last decade, now there is a feeling that nothing is working. And it's at moments like this, I think, that real change becomes possible and people are looking for change. It's whether we can make that change credible and we can make that sense of hope convincing between now and the next general election. Let me now, as we talk about localism, let me offer two things that might pose some trouble. The first, in the context of Brexit and political polarization, how do you see these cultural and social divergences being translated into local communities? And in second, does localism engender some type of insularity? You know, you talked earlier about national governments and international planning still being important, but what is that balance that you need to create, you know, to prevent insularity? Uh, you know, as you devolve more power as well as more resources uh, to local government? Uh, my experience over the, the last decade or so representing a town where people have really struggled a lot with the impact of austerity, huge deep cuts to our public services, and the fallout from that in our town was immense. We didn't have the resilience baked in to be able to deal with that, either in people's family finances or in the local economy. Um, my experience has been actually that people are fundamentally far more forward thinking, far more long term thinking than their governments that they've they've elected. That you know the, there have been furious rows here in in my local community as there are right across Britain about house building. For example, we have a huge housing shortage, we have a massive housing crisis, and it all comes down to the fact that we're not building enough homes, we're not building the right sort of homes, we're not building social homes and affordable homes. And lots of communities very, very angry about the idea of housing being built in their own communities. They're labelled NIMBYs, not in my backyard, and people are pretty disparaging about them. So, But what I've learned from, from having to deal with that at the coalface in communities, having to navigate those tensions, is that people want the houses. What they don't want is houses that are worth half a million pounds in a town where average household incomes are around £20,000 a year because their kids are never going to be able to buy those houses. They're not going to be able to stay in the local area. And more and more, they see themselves priced out of their own communities. But if that housing was genuinely affordable, if we protected green open spaces, and that doesn't mean that you don't get any building and green open spaces, but it does mean that you look at post-industrial sites first and redevelop them. If, if there was money that came with those new developments to help fund the basic infrastructure that's been falling apart in many of those communities for a very long time, that's when you get a completely different conversation. And to give you a really, really stark example, immigration has been a, a huge flashpoint in Britain for a very long time, sort of dropped off a bit after the referendum. But it was, you know, it has been a, a real, a really difficult issue to navigate in Britain. And 
you know, my community, we had a hundreds of asylum seeking men into a hotel in a small former pit village on the outskirts of Wigan a few years ago by a private company that contracted by the government to buy up accommodation. They did it overnight. They didn't tell anybody. They didn't tell me. They didn't tell the police. They didn't tell the council. And so the next morning you had hundreds of young men who had been through an incredibly traumatic experience, mostly coming over from parts of Africa into a village that is 98.5% white. They, you know, they were visible. It completely changed the feel overnight and people were anxious and my phone was ringing off the hook with people saying what on earth is going on the far right came to Wigan they traveled here they stood outside with the hotel with and all sorts of appalling you know chanting appalling slogans it was a really difficult febrile environment we called a public meeting we got people into the room and we explained to them what was going on and why this company had this accommodation uh, we said to people, we we have a higher proportion of as asylum accommodation here than other parts of the country, so we can say no to any more. Instead, what happened was that the community rallied round. We got we launched an appeal for support, and we got twenty thousand bags of donations in two weeks. The local community set up a five-a-side football team. The local priests and vicars opened up their churches to help the families who were coming over. It was a completely game-changing experience. But the reason that it changed is we because we put the community back in the driving seat. And that phrase during the referendum, take back control, really spoke to that sense that people will accept change and they'll accept um, lots of things in their own communities, but they've got to be in the driving seat of making those decisions. Lisa, finally... You see the anger and frustration not as signs of despair, but as positive signs. And you say this while quoting Pankaj Mishra, so you're obviously very hopeful. What gives you this hope? And what are maybe one or two of the most concrete policy changes that need to happen to convert this hope into reality? For a long time, I thought people had just got sick of politics. I think they turned off. I thought they were fairly apathetic. People weren't voting. They weren't participating. And it was when we started to see a huge rise in support for nationalism in England and we started to see a rise in support for a party independence party here uh, and people were coming out to vote for the first time in a very long time. And then again, when they came out to vote leave during the EU referendum, I was campaigning for Remain. I'm very much in favour of cooperation between Britain and the European Union. And so it was on one level, it was heartbreaking to see people go out and vote for these things. On the other hand, I felt vaguely excited because they weren't apathetic, they were angry and you can work with anger because there's somewhere for it to go and something that you can channel towards something better. And I'd never forget the day when a guy came out of his house and said, I'm voting for them because you lot need to change. And I felt excited. And actually, we've started to see that in many parts of the country. People are coming together and building things that are better and they're building things that work and they're challenging their politicians to up our game and to do more and to match the level of ambition that they have. And I think we're, you know, I think we're in a really odd place at the moment in Britain. I don't think for most politicians or journalists, I think it's still well understood how close the entire democratic system came to collapse in recent years. There's a great academic called Harry Pitts over here who wrote a book about this. And he said, 
You know, there are people on both left and right who luxuriate in the flames licking at the side of liberal democracy. And that is absolutely still the case. And those people are still waiting at the gates, waiting to prey on those tensions that exist. And I think the system could very much collapse because in a representative democracy, if people don't feel represented, if they're not represented, the system can't survive. But there's a window here for real change. And people want us to, to, to give voice to it. They want us to rise to this moment. A few years ago, I sat down with this incredible film director, Danny Boyle, who comes from Lancashire, like me, he comes from Bury, where my mum lives. And I talked to him about that. The last time we really nationally gave voice to the country that we are and that we know we can be was when he did the Olympic opening ceremony of the London 2012 Games. And that was this great celebration of the working class people who've come together to build this country and created everything that matters in Britain. And I said to him, where did that country go? There was that little moment where we all came together as a country and said, we believe in that, that's who we are. And then everything fell apart. And he said to me, it's still there. It's just waiting for its politicians to give voice to it again. That's what George Orwell called the country that lies beneath the surface. That country is still there. It, it hasn't been heard, but it must be heard. And I'm determined, you know, whether it's through writing books or coming on your brilliant podcast, that it will be heard and that we'll start acting on people's priorities again. Well, Lisa, on that optimistic note, thank you so much for joining us today. We hope this is the first of many conversations uh, and we look forward to seeing how your agenda unfolds in the coming years. Oh, it's been amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, I do recommend checking out Lisa's book, All In, How We Build a Country That Works, published by Harper North. Karthik Sani is the assistant producer for Policy Works. In addition, Hugh Spencer provided research assistance for this episode. For more about the Reimagining the Economy project, visit reimaginingtheeconomy.hks.harvard.edu.